Christians whom I opposed. And on my way there, Christ himself, the risen Christ, crucified and now risen from the dead, appeared to me. And he commissioned me and called me to make known to small and great, to Jew and to Gentile, the message that Christ has resurrected from the dead and that forgiveness of sins are found in the person of Jesus Christ. He called me to do that. That's where we were. Here's where we're going. Paul is saying, and that's exactly what I've done. He commissioned me, the risen Christ appeared to me. I saw the Lord of glory. And he commissioned me to share the the gospel of repentance and faith in his name. And that's exactly what I've done. And I'm not, again, he he repeats the theme that I'm not making anything up. This is what Jews, uh, the Jewish people have always believed. I'm just saying it's happened. So we're going to see Paul continue the message of the gospel in this. And then we're going to see two responses to Paul's gospel message. That's where we've been. Um, Follow along with me if you have your Bibles in Acts chapter 26. Let's look at verses 19 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 32. Listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have, held the, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing But what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether a short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. We pray the blessing of God's word in our lives today. And so as Paul begins this, the second half of his sermon, and we begin to look at the second half of this sermon, Paul begins with, I obeyed Christ. I obeyed the heavenly vision. The vision said, um, I saw Christ risen, and he said, preach repentance, preach salvation to Jew and Gentile, and that's exactly what I've done. I want to begin by looking at who are the recipients of Paul's message? Who are the recipients of the gospel? 
And this is one of the things we've been noting over the past few weeks. The first recipients are geographic. That is, he says, I preached in Damascus. You'll recall, Paul was converted in Damascus. And immediately... He begins preaching the gospel in Damascus. And then in Jerusalem, after Paul left Damascus, he went back to Jerusalem. He found the brothers there and began preaching in Jerusalem. And then in Judea. We're not exactly sure of that uh, ministry area. And then it says that he preached to the Gentiles. So Paul says, listen, I was obedient to the vision. I went from Damascus to Jerusalem to Judea and to the Gentiles preaching the gospel just as I was commanded by the risen Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, to do. And so we see this geographic spread of the gospel. But the gospel not only spreads geographically, it also spreads socially. He says, look at verse 22, um, to small and to great. The gospel is not just for an exclusive group of individuals. It is for um, people of every strata of the social structure. So Paul is saying, listen, I preach the gospel in Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, and the Gentiles, and I also spoke the gospel to Jewish men in synagogues. I preached the gospel to Jewish women meeting down by the river. I spoke the gospel to magicians and sorcerers, to Gentile citizens, to Gentile leaders, to jailers, to business people, to slaves, to philosophers, to teachers, persecutors, and allies, governors, and now a king. There is no group of people who do not need the gospel, regardless of where they live or regardless of their status of where and wherever they live. They need the gospel. So we need to affirm the universality of the gospel. It is not only for every person, but it is for every person in every circumstance. So the gospel is not just for the oppressed. It is for the oppressed, but it is for the oppressor as well. It is not just for the person in some remote village in some unknown jungle. It is for them, but it is also for those who are in the ivory towers of the concrete jungle in our greatest cities. The wealthiest of men and the poorest of men. Male or female, all are in need of the gospel. And it doesn't matter where we are. The gospel is our greatest need. Paul's saying, I was obedient to it. That's what I've done. That's exactly what I've done. I've gone wherever and spoken to whomever. The saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So those are the recipients of the gospel. I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the message of the gospel. It seems uh, incomplete if we talk about the gospel, but not tell what the gospel is. So the gospel is described very well in this passage of text. And as I go forward explaining the message of the gospel, I'm going to approach this with great caution. And I'm going to ask you to pay attention. Because... I'm going to walk a little bit of a fine line here, um, especially the way this begins. I'm going to uh, approach this in the order in which it's given to us in the text. And it might appear at the very beginning, if I don't handle this the way I hope to handle it, that I am preaching a works-based salvation. And you know that I do not believe that a person is saved by works. 
and I'm going to approach this in a way, or I might end up treading over, I might be heard as uh, trending over towards a very moralistic position. In other words, Christianity is about being nice or being a good person. So I'm going to walk this line as, as Paul has it. Um, stick with me here. And I think um, I'm going to look at the, the component pieces that Paul has given us. And then at the, after we look at each component of the gospel, then we will put it all together into one unified whole. So the message of the gospel, Paul has already been told by Christ that he needs to preach um, the resurrection, that the people would turn from their sins, they would be forgiven of their sins, that they would be set apart. And now Paul is going to repeat those phrases. Look what he says. He says that um, um, that he was told to preach um, that he should, he was told to preach to those in Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, repent and live a life bearing fruit of repentance. This is very John the Baptist-ish, isn't it? And in fact, Agrippa, his family members, uh, one of his family members, uh, killed John the Baptist. So I, I don't know if that's purposeful, but this sounds a lot like John the Baptist. Turn to God and bear fruit, bear the fruit of repentance. Turn to God. Proof of one's response to God's grace is characterized by good works. In other words, Paul has no concept of this modern idea that one can claim Christ apart from a change of heart that produces Christ-like actions. Ephesians 2.10 is probably our go-to text because it talks about I, that, that we are saved by grace through faith and that it is a gift. It is not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. And then, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith for good works that God has already prepared that we will do. Paul has no concept of this idea that one can claim Christ and have no change. Now, I caution that we must not fall into the trap that reduces being in Christ to some sort of moral improvement or behavior modification. The Christian life is not about making you a more moral person or have better behavior. I, I think that's the fruit of being a Christian, but that is not the essence of being a Christian. What Paul has declared are moral imperatives. That is what we must do. But you need to understand that these moral imperatives flow out of what Christ has done. In other words, we do not obtain the merits of Christ by our doing, but our doing flows out of what Christ has done. But again, I'm taking these in the order in which Paul gives them to us. That is, what we must do flows out of what God has done. We live in a day where many, uh, I, I would think that from what I, I hear and read and, and, and observe that a, what makes a person a Christian is that they're nice. Being nice is equated with being a Christian. I know a lot of non-Christians who are nice. I, I, and I hear this all the time. I hear people who, who are deceived and 
and believing and following utterly false beliefs, things that deny the very essence of the Christian faith. And, but people say, yeah, but they're good people. To which I reply, well, if good people go to heaven, they'll be first in line. But good people don't go to heaven. Redeemed people go to heaven. I hope redeemed people are nice. I hope that we learn how to be tolerant and and patient and love one another. Paul is saying that you need to repent, turn around, turn to Christ, and then bear fruits in keeping with that repentance. That is what we must do. That is the imperative. But it flows out of what has been done. And so we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about what God has done. And fortunately, Paul tells us. Paul says this, to this day, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So what has Christ done? Christ has suffered for our sins and rose from the dead. This this idea of Christ's suffering is essential to Christianity. He suffered. And Isaiah chapter 53 captures this, this truth very, very well. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was crushed for us, pierced for us, and by his wounds we are healed. And all of this then culminates at Calvary. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world walks up the mountain of Calvary and allows sinful men to nail him to a torture tree where he willingly gave up his life. The New Testament knows nothing of crossless Christianity. It was here that Christ suffered the full wrath of God for the sins of his own. If you are in Christ, on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ for you. That he might be both just, that he judges sin, and the justifier, that is, he makes you right with him. All of this is because of Christ. Christ had to suffer. And Paul's saying this, listen guys. This is what the prophets and this is what Moses has been saying. I just read from Isaiah, but the psalmist speaks of this. Um, it is not unique to Paul's message. Paul's saying, listen, this is something Moses and the prophets preached, that the Christ would suffer. So why are you surprised that Jesus, the Messiah, suffered on the cross? That shouldn't be something that would catch you by surprise. And it is the heart of the Christian testimony that Christ suffered for our sins. He suffered for us. He willingly suffered for his people. But Christ just didn't suffer and die and bear the wrath of God on our behalf. Christ rose from the dead. And this is what Paul says. He said um, that Christ would, must, not would, but must suffer. And that being the first to rise from the dead. And so the next very important aspect of the 
Christian gospel is that Christ rose from the dead. And once again, this is prominent in the prophets and it's prominent in Moses. Isaiah speaks of Christ rising from the dead. Isaiah chapter 53. um, Again, we see that... um, says this in Isaiah 53:10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, note that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. An offering for guilt, a guilt offering was a dead animal. It died. When he, the suffering servant, makes an offering for guilt, it speaks of his death. Previously also, Isaiah wrote that they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, even though he'd done no violence. When that work was complete, when that work was complete, um, then it says he will see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And it's an amazing thing how a dead person can see his offspring and have his days prolonged. The suffering servant who suffers for our sake will not stay dead. He will make an offering for sin and he will rise from the dead. This is what the psalmist said. You will not abandon your Messiah to Sheol, to the realm of the dead. The guilt offering in Isaiah implies death and yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Romans chapter 1 Verse 4 talks about that by the resurrection, Jesus is declared the Son of God. That is, Jesus, by his resurrection, is vindicated. He is who he says he is. And he says that he is the Son of God. That he, if you've seen him, you've seen God. That he is the way, the truth, the life. That no one comes to the Father but by him. How do we know that this is true? Because he rose from the dead. And so, this truth will be a light to both Jews and and the Gentiles. Everybody comes to Christ the same way. We all come through the person of Jesus Christ. You have no privilege in that sense. You come through the person of Jesus Christ. So I've looked at some of the various components. Let me try to put this all together in this little summary. Number one, Paul is not a religious innovator. His message has its roots in Moses and the prophets. You can go back and look. If you want greater detail of this, look at Peter's sermon in chapter 2, verse 24 through 36. Um, Peter's sermon in 3, 17 and 36. Paul's sermon in 13, 32 and 39. All these go back, and even these go back to, the, to uh, Jesus in the upper room. In other words, the message that Paul is talking about has its roots in Moses and the prophets. Folks, I want you to understand that the New Testament and the Old Testament are not two separate books. They they are part of one great, grand narrative that speaks of God's redemption. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just saying that what God has done in the past, he has now completed in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered for our sins. Christ rose again on the third day. And we respond in repentance, performing deeds appropriate to such gracious gifts. And this message has spread both geographically and socially. This is the triumph of the gospel. Paul is in chains, but the gospel is not. The gospel triumphs. 
So this is Paul's great speech before Agrippa. And there are two responses to this speech, and the first one comes from the governor, Festus. And Festus, is, it sounds like Festus can't contain himself. It says, as Paul was saying these things in his defense, almost like Festus interrupted with a loud voice, Paul, you're a nut job. Well, that's not exactly what it says, but it's what it says. You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. More likely than not, this is a response to Paul talking about the resurrection. Remember, um, the resurrection was a major stumbling block for Gentiles. Jews had their own stumbling block. They stumbled over the fact that the Gentiles could be included in the community of God um, on the, by faith alone. Jews stumbled over that, but Gentiles had their own stumbling block, and the resurrection was a major stumbling block. They understood, in their understanding of human beings, is that our, our ultimate goal is to shed this body and let our spirits go free, and our spirits are our true us. They are our pure, undefiled who we are, and this mortal body that houses our spirits is this corrupt abominable, nasty, icky thing. And we want to be free from this body. But when Paul's talking resurrection, he's talking no body and spirit are joined in this glorious eternal state. And that was really baffling to, um, to Gentiles. This is why when Paul's on, on Mars Hill speaking, they're listening to him until when? And he brings up resurrection. And then they're like, oh, nah, we're not having any of this. And, and so Paul's talking resurrection and Festus saying, you're nuts. This is certainly a common response to the gospel. In other words, discredit the messenger and you discredit the message. Paul is preaching. Paul's preaching is pervasive and it is persuasive. And the only way Festus can rationalize his rejection is to declare the messenger mad and the message gibberish. I want you to take note of that. Festus is hearing this. Paul is making a compelling case. But the only way this man can justify his unbelief is to disregard the message and disregard the messenger. The messenger must be mad and the message must be foolish. They did this to Jesus as well. If you can discredit the messenger, then you can discredit the message. And we see that same thing today. We share the gospel. We share the love of Christ. And the response is, well, you're just a old-fashioned, puritanical, bigoted, flat-earther Neanderthal. Well, maybe so, but that doesn't disregard the message. What does the message say? The idea is, why would you believe anything from some old-fashioned, puritanical, bigoted, flat-earther Neanderthal? And so people continue to discredit the messenger in order to give justification to their unbelief. Festus has nowhere to go, so he must discredit the messenger. Paul responds to Festus. 
Festus saying, no, actually the message is reliable. I am not mad. I am not crazy. The message is reliable. And it's well known to the public. In other words, these are not esoteric mysteries that have been reserved for an elite few. I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. The king knows these things, and to him I speak boldly. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And that's one of the unique aspects or one of the unique features of the Christian faith. It is not given to one person in a dream or a vision or some secret ceremony in some isolated place. The message is reliable. It's well known to the public. These aren't mysteries that are um, uh, reserved for an elite few. In fact, the ministry and death of Jesus are common knowledge. It's what Paul's saying. You'll recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the resurrection and he says that the resurrected Christ appeared to Cephas and to others and then to 500 and some of them are still alive. This speech took place a few years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, so probably some of those people are still alive. You can talk to people who actually have seen the risen Christ. I'm not making this up. One of the beauties of the Christian faith is that it is not just one guy or one woman got a vision and then she or he told everybody else, but rather it's been revealed through history. It is a historic faith. We can look at Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Samuel and Ezra and Nehemiah. It has not been given just to one person, but it has been given over the course of time in in objective historical events. Paul's just saying that the resurrection is another objective historical event. It didn't come about through some private dream that I had other people have seen the risen Christ as well. They're common knowledge. I don't know if you've ever faced this response that when you share the gospel with somebody, they say you're a nut job. Or maybe they put it more tactfully, but they're still saying you're a nut job. You're crazy. If you face this response, I just want to um, assure you, you are not a failure. You are right on track. You are on point. So Festus responds to the gospel by saying you're crazy. Agrippa, the king, has a completely different response. And I'm calling this, he deflects and he departs. Man, Paul puts Agrippa on the spot. Here is a king. And Paul just will not let him off the hook. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For these things have not been done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Wow. <laughs> you believe, don't you? Any, in other words, anyone who's believed the prophets and compared their predictions with the historical facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth must acknowledge the truth of Christianity. Paul is not allowing King Agrippa to be a passive listener. He is calling for a decision. Perhaps you could say this is Paul's altar call to Agrippa. Agrippa, I'm speaking to you. You know these things are true. Don't you? Look what Agrippa does. He deflects. Man, here's a a politician. Paul's just nailed. He's 
pointed them out. I've shared the gospel. Festus says, I'm not, but Agrippa, you know I'm telling the truth. You know the Jewish faith. You've looked at the prophets. You know that this person, Jesus, fits everything. If you weigh it, you have to be honest and say that you would have to believe. But Agrippa will not believe, and this is what he says. He deflects. In a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Basically, here's what he says. Do you think that you can convince me with so, so few words and in such a short time? Do you think with such a, a brief explanation of the gospel, do you think that would be convincing to me? Grip is on the hot seat. He doesn't want to, depri- to deny Moses and the prophets, but he's not yet wanting to come to Christ, so he deflects. I don't think I have enough information yet. Really, that, those few words, you think I can make such a life-changing decision with so few words? But Paul won't let him off the hook. Whether short or long, I would, that God not, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So whether it's a few words or a lot of words, it doesn't matter. Agrippa, you're saying you need more time. Fine, I'll give you more time. But whether it's a few words in a short period of time or a lot of words in a long period of time, I don't care. I would that you would become a Christian. I would that you would become like me except for these chains. Paul will not let Agrippa off the hook. This is a bold move for a prisoner to speak to a king in such a way. Paul doesn't care. Like, I'm preaching the gospel and this is Agrippa. How often do I get to speak in front of a king? I love this verse 30. Then the king arose. And when they had withdrawn, in other words, I'm done. It's over. Defense is done. Um, Not listening to anything else. Uh, Paul basically, meeting's over. We're done. And he goes and he consults with some of the others. And here we see the verdict. And you'll see in your notes this is very short because the verdict is very short. Um, Basically, what they're saying is this man's done nothing wrong, but he's appealed to Caesar, so send him to Caesar. Otherwise, we would let him go. I don't think they would have let him go. Here's what they're doing. They're kicking the can down the road. This is typical politician, right? You've got a difficult decision. They don't want to let Paul go. If they let Paul go, then the Jewish people are going to be all up in arms and there's going to be a riot. They don't want to have to deal with that. And yet at the same time, Roman justice demands they let him go. We don't know what to do. Kick the can down the road. Paul's appealed to Rome. Send him to Rome. Let Rome deal with this problem. He is out of our hair. We can go about our business. He'll be forgotten. Let Rome deal with him. Very politician. Very political move. Let Rome figure it out. And so this is what we've seen now. Paul presents the gospel. He presents how one should respond to the gospel. We've seen a couple people um, respond to it. And so I will conclude with a few points. Number one, I like how Paul takes advantage of his chains to declare the truths about Jesus. I think that's important. You see, our circumstances are not a hindrance to the share of the gospel. So wherever you are, in whatever stage of life you're at, you can share the gospel. Some of you probably have fewer days in front of you than you have behind you. But your age is not a hindrance to sharing the gospel. 
Your forum may be different. You may say, well, I have a lot more doctor's appointments than I used to have. Or I can't do what I used to do. But those should never serve as a hindrance to the gospel. You may have kids and you're busy running around and trying to keep track of them all and making sure that... I know you're herding cats, basically. And yet you have opportunities and and relationships in which to share the gospel. Your kids are not a hindrance to share the gospel. You may be empty nesters. Or wherever you're at in life, newlyweds, wherever you're at in life, none of our circumstances. Paul's a prisoner, and he's been sharing the gospel. When we share the gospel, we should make sure that we provide for both the indicatives and the imperatives. And here's what I mean by that. The indicatives mean what is true. And what is true is what Paul said, that Christ suffered, died, and rose again. That he suffered for our sakes. That he died for our sins. And that he rose again, which assures us that the payment was complete. That's what Christ has done. Make sure you say what Christ has done. And then there are the imperatives. Therefore, what should you do about it? Now, this is what Paul does. He calls Grippa. Listen, I told you the gospel. Now do something about it. I know you believe. What should you do? You should repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We do a, an injustice when we declare one without the other. If all we talk about is Jesus is Lord, but don't call men and women to repentance, I think we've left something lacking. Likewise, if all we say is you need to repent and be a better person, for on what basis? It's because of what Christ has done. So we need to make sure that we provide, when we make a gospel presentation, that we understand what the gospel is, that Christ, that that we have sinned against a holy God and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of Jesus is eternal life and that if we would repent and believe that Christ's payment for our sins on Calvary is sufficient, that he will forgive us of our sins and we can have eternal life. Therefore, we should repent and um, turn to God. Then finally, I want to note this that the gospel triumphs. This is the title of this whole sermon series in the book of Acts. The triumph of the gospel. And here, the gospel triumphs in an audience hall in Caesarea before military elites, prominent men, and a regional king. You're saying it doesn't sound like it, it, it triumphed. These people didn't believe. The gospel triumphed. It went forth, even in places where there was no gospel penetration ever before. The gospel had never been heard in such a place and now the gospel is proclaimed. That is Paul's job. That is our job. That is your job. That is my job. So I guess all our final point then is this. What are you going to do? What should we do? What about us? Where can we proclaim the gospel? Where can we make Christ known? All of us have different forums. All of us have different Um, spheres of influence. And God has not put you there by accident. You were there for a purpose. Paul was in jail for a purpose. And he was faithful to the gospel. 
Father, we come before you this day, and I pray that your name is honored in the things we say, Lord God. I pray that through this message, it was your word was accurately portrayed and proclaimed. I pray, Father God, that nothing, that I've not misused your word. And I pray, Father God, that it is well understood. So convict us by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord God, to believe your truth and to follow after you and to do so with a sincere heart. Grant us favor and grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.